Do what you really believe in. Do something for which you have a passion. Commit to it. Be tenacious. Never give up. Never compromise your integrity on what it is you believe in. And that's not easy. The oil and gas industry, the driving engine of the world economy, delivering prosperity, innovation and abundance across the globe. Here are the stories of its key players, directly from the leaders themselves. This is Bulwark's Oil and Gas Industry Leaders Podcast, where real experiences are passed on from the leaders of today to the leaders of tomorrow. Here is your host, Paige Wilson. Welcome to this week's episode. I'm sitting here at the lovely Capital Girl City Center with my guest, Professor Paul Michael Wiebe, partner at Can-Am Strategic Advisory, adjunction professor at the University of Port Harcourt, Nigeria, and research fellow at Daniel Morgan Graduate School of National Security. How are you, Professor? Very well. Thank you, Paige, for having me. What do you not do? I mean, goodness. Yeah, that's, well, a lot of, that's a lot of stuff to have on your plate. A lot of stuff, and I enjoy every moment, moment of it. And right now, you know, I'm working with the, uh, as you mentioned, the Daniel Morgan Graduate School of National mm-hmm. Security in Washington, D.C. I'm loving every moment of it. We're Standing up, I'm building out, uh, my responsibility is to build out a new institute, and it will be called, are you ready for this? I'm ready, I think so. I think so. Okay, here we go. The Institute for the Geopolitics of Energy and Natural Resources. That is exciting. It is exciting. Well, awesome. So before we get into it, I need to read this week's review in iTunes of the show. Mm Mm-hmm. Kristen OTCG gives the show five stars and says, great podcast. Thank you, Kristen OTCG, for taking the moment out of your time to leave some feedback. So please remember that you can also support the show by taking a few minutes to leave a review in iTunes and thank you in advance. So before we get into your roles now with the plethora of stuff you've got going on in the launch of the new institute, uh, let's, let's talk about where you began in the industry. Well, that's an interesting story. First of all, I'd like you and your audience, your great audience here with this podcast at Modal Point, and thank you for inviting me to participate. Yes, absolutely. Yep. So, a little background. Mm -hmm. I'm a dual U.S.-Canadian citizen, born in Springfield, Massachusetts, Mm -hmm. on the 4th of July page, and grew up in Montreal, Quebec, Canada. I uh, was brought up in Montreal, educated in Montreal, ended up serving two terms as a vice president of the Federal Liberal Party of Canada under the prime ministership of Pierre Elliott Trudeau, the father of the current Oh, okay. I was going to say Trudeau. That sounds familiar. Yeah. Yeah. Pierre, the father of Justin, you know. Right. So that led to my traveling to Beirut, Lebanon, where I worked out of the Canadian embassy in Beirut during the Civil War period. Oh, wow. And one of the duties I had was working out of the commercial attaché's office. And I had a meeting while I was there with a very high-ranking Lebanese Sunni official, Mm -hmm. closely connected to the Saudi government. Mm -hmm. And he began discussing with me the geopolitics of oil and energy. And it was just phenomenal listening to him talk about these things. Of course, I'm from Western Mass and from Montreal, which isn't exactly oil country, right? 
So it was no, not at all. <laughs> so it was wonderful listening to him, and you know, my education at University of Montreal was in government political science. So this was really struck me as extraordinary, and I thought, my goodness, this is really something I will enjoy working on. Anyways, I went back to Canada, and I had an opportunity after being offered a position at the prime minister's office, which I turned down. Why is that? Well, because I saw how international politics really worked from the inside. Because when you're working in the Canadian embassy, you're working with your allies, namely the, the U.S. and other Western countries. So I had an opportunity to see how the power structure really operated from the inside in a very practical way, not theoretical and abstract, right? So I said, you know, thank you very much. I wanted to take advantage of my U.S. citizenship. And then I traveled down to Washington. And I just went on my own. I had no contacts. I knew no one. They're just, you know, I'm going to try and see what happens. So I went down to Washington. And lo and behold, after a short while, I received a knock on the door, if you will. And it was from a U.S. interagency organization. I won't go beyond that. Sounds scary. And they said, Weeby, we know you have uh, some knowledge and you have some contacts in the Middle East. And can you help us out? And I said, yes, sir. For God and country. (laughs) Absolutely. And I I was really happy to do that because my father, who's 97 years old, God bless him, was or is a veteran of the U.S. Navy of the World War II. Mm Mm-hmm in the Pacific, Iwo Jima, and Okinawa. So an opportunity to serve my country, yes, of course I jumped at it. And uh, that led to some adventures overseas, a very interesting experience. But what was most important is I saw how official Washington really, really worked from the inside. Not from the outside, but deep inside. So I got familiar with the swamp before (laughs) the swamp Became yeah, is swampy. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I saw the swamp moss, monsters and all these things. And, but I also saw the good people, you know, who risked their lives on behalf of this country every day. Mm-hmm. And I appreciate those folks a whole lot. So that gave me, you know, a context. It gave me an understanding of how these things really work from the inside out, which you cannot get in university. You cannot no. get from textbooks, you know? Yeah. Uh, and you know that, Paige. Yes, absolutely. So that provided me uh, a sort of expertise and insight. But I wanted to add to that, uh, you know, professional standing. And I started working on the geopolitics of energy as my area of knowledge that was distinct to me and based on my experiences. And I began writing articles, and lo and behold, I received an invite to work at a policy institute in Washington. I did that for a couple, three years. It was very good. I enjoyed it. And I started looking at the unconventionals, Mm -hmm. you know, the oil sands up in Canada, which no one had heard of, really, and starting in 2002. And then after a period of time, 2002, I decided to start my own my own consultancy, mm-hmm. which was called GWS Global Water and Energy Strategy Team, mm-hmm. and that consultancy really uh, lasted until a year and a half ago. So we had a pretty good run. Uh, just a small operation, apolitical, and so most of my engagements mm-hmm. were overseas. You know, 
uh, meaning, or foreign or non-American, meaning Canada and Europe and the Middle East and Asia. Not so much in the U.S. per se. And that was interesting uh, development. But I worked uh, on the oil sands issue. My firm uh, had a seven and a half year contract with the leading energy investment bank in Western Canada. And we wrote up a quarterly called the geopolitics of energy and it was great fun and i went up to alberta and saskatchewan and all over that area where they you know are working on oil sands and developing not only the the mining aspect but the new technology sag d and and uh, horizontal drilling all that you know happened up in alberta in the early early 2000s and that was fascinating because that's, that's exactly what i was looking for how technology and the unconventionals we're coming to the fore and changing the uh, global oil picture at that time. And I knew there were problems in the Persian Gulf in terms of the quality of the reservoirs and the, the amount, the official booking on the reserves. So I was someone who never believed in peak oil I, and scarcity and all of these scare, gloom and yeah. doom issues. I never believed it. And finally, I found the proof, the evidence that we have an abundance of hydrocarbons of all types all over the world. Oh, yes. You know? Very much so. And it was exciting. And you see new technology being developed. And I actually wrote a book in 2008, 2009, which was published in Geneva, Switzerland. Oh, wow. Yep. Impressive. And it's called The Rise of the New Oil Order. Interesting. And published in... English and French. And I was telling Mark LaCour, I said, you know, this book was banned in the USA. You know, I love to say that, banned in the USA. Yeah? So, and, but I went after peak oil theory because I knew it was a fraud. It wasn't based on scientific evidence. And they were using this information and the so-called data to manipulate Wall Street and manipulate price and price volatility. And I didn't like any of that at all. It was totally dishonest, I thought. So I wrote this book and I wrote about the potential of all of these unconventional, you know, oil sands and offshore oil and, and, and shale and the new technologies that were arising. And this was in almost 10 years ago. And it's, it's kind of amazing to see how that's changed from a decade ago. Yep. And now we have things like like podcasts that yep. that actually explain or talk in the same instance as your book. Yep, exactly. Because we've entered, and this is why you know sitting down here with you, Paige, and you know the good folks at Modal Point. I'm very excited about what you all are doing because it's part of the new oil order, the new revolution in shale and technology and export facilities that have come about in the last two, three years. And it started, as you know, with fracking technology around 2009, 2010. And then when Congress lifted the ban on exports in December of 2015, you know, things changed. And then the Trump administration came in and built on those two significant historical developments. And now you have deregulation and investment and encouragement of the energy industry. And it can be oil and natural gas and coal and even renewable technologies of all types. And so this is very exciting and it's great for the U.S. because as I say when I give these presentations, it's about prosperity for the USA 
Of course, it's America first in energy. But it's also about peace and prosperity. Because we no longer have to go overseas and commit our people, our troops, to secure oil or to fight over oil in foreign lands far away. And the president has said, it's cost us almost $7 trillion over the last decade or so to send our people overseas. We don't have to do that anymore. Yeah. You know? And, you know, my dad's a veteran. My uncle in Massachusetts who passed away was one of the very first rangers, you know, when the, when the battalions, when the regiments were formed in um, North Africa. Mm-hmm. And those are terrible things that those people have to go through to risk their lives for us. So when we have an opportunity to prevent war from happening and we can allow our people to work at home and to prosper here, well, that's, that's really very, very significant. And now, thanks to the oil and gas industry in the United States, we can have not only prosperity, but we can have peace. And I think that's something that the industry really ought to take note of. I don't think they fully understand it. But from a larger perspective, when you look back and you look at the geopolitics and you look at what this administration is trying to do with North Korea and Saudi Arabia, yes, we're on the verge of possibly establishing a formula for peace that could last many generations. Very good. So can you, in sum, explain what geopolitics means in case somebody in the audience doesn't understand? Oh, sure. Absolutely. Geopolitics is the study of international relations from a political and regional perspective. So, for example, you would take the Middle East, the Persian Gulf, region as a geographic zone, Mm -hmm. and you would look at the politics of that region, the various countries that are in that area, what their ideology or their politics might be, their their agenda, if you will. And then you add to that the energy component. Do they get most of their money from oil revenue? Are they using oil as a weapon against other countries or to extort revenue from other countries? Do they utilize that revenue to build up their particular country and jurisdiction? Or do they use it for something else, like propping up other governments, using that money for terrorism or for foreign military activities? That's the geopolitics of energy. Very good, very good. And I really love your enthusiasm just about all of this, because it's something to incredibly be enthusiastic about. But you really haven't touched on what you had to go through to get here. What, what were some of those real challenges that, that really kind of got in your way? Well, I think the biggest challenge is the fact that over the last couple of decades, official Washington, and what do I mean by official Washington? It's that combination of power centers, which include not only government and the various agencies of government, but think tanks the media, universities, major business operations centered in the Washington, D.C. area. You take them as a totality, right? Okay. And it's a power center. You know, Washington is the capital of the world. It's Rome, if you will. And there has been a reluctance up until recently, a reluctance to 
utilize the natural resources of this country to promote its energy independence, economic growth, and strong, peaceful foreign relations. Because the other way, you know, intervening in various Middle Eastern areas and other areas not in the Middle East, was very profitable to many of these factions in official Washington. And they did not want to hear about the fantastic shale deposits in Texas or North Dakota or Utah or Colorado, because that would upset the apple cart. Mm. That would upset the money flows, the revenue flows coming in to the small group of individuals and that makes and said, platforms. Said, that yeah. makes said decisions. Yeah, you know. So you had to navigate through that in the Washington area. And that's why most of my work was done outside of Washington. I went where, you know. I don't blame this, you. <laughs> this, yeah, I went where this type of message was well received, where people wanted to hear these things for their own interests, for their own calculations, right? So I think what's happened now is that because of the fracking innovation, innovation, because you had these small, what were, they're not small, but compared to the big legacy mm-hmm. players like Exxon and Chevron and so forth, Super you had these almost mom and pop type of operations. Yeah. And if you, you get some acres out in North Dakota or in the Bakken or in the, in, in the Permian, and you, you start drilling and use fracking and you take a big risk and you'd have to hedge the funding on these things, and there, no one would touch you. None of the banks would come along. You know, you had to be very creative, and you took a chance. And all of a sudden, around 2010, you know, the technology kicked in, and that natural gas and that oil began to come out without any government support at all. Right. Okay. And then finally, after about five years, Congress cut a deal. They recognized finally, hey, this could be good for the country. Let's export now. And that broke the back of the resistance to the ability of the United States itself to become energy self-sufficient and eventually energy independent. All right. So now that we know where you started, let's discuss this big pot that you've got your hand in, Mm. all these different pots you've got your hand in. Mm -hmm. Well, in December, Mm -hmm. I was asked to come on board with the Daniel Morgan graduate school of national security in washington dc and it's a great graduate school relatively new and they're training their students in the science and art of national security which includes intelligence and military issues and geopolitics and so forth and i was asked to come on board and build out what will be a new institute as part of DMGS, and this institute will be the Institute of the Geopolitics of Energy and Natural Resources. So that would include oil and gas and coal and water and strategic minerals like cobalt and lithium and so on and so forth. And uh, I'm happy to be doing that. I'm very excited. And what's interesting, we go back to the question you asked me before, Paige, when you said, you know, Paul Michael, what's what was the biggest challenge that you had to deal with and you had to overcome? And I responded to you by saying, you know, official Washington and this mindset that they had for a long time. Well, the folks over at Daniel Morgan have 
recognize that we're into this new landscape in Washington, right? Yeah. And it has a lot to do with economic circumstances, energy issues, and the new Trump administration coming into power with an emphasis on deregulation and the marketplace and encouraging an America first type of an agenda. And we're apolitical, but the reality is that we've entered this new age of energy in the United States and around the world. And this sort of institute, you know, this sort of platform has real value for government and business and students. And they've asked me to put this together and, and, and create what will become, I believe, the finest institute of its kind or from uh, anywhere to be found in the U.S. or around the world. And I'm very happy that I've been given this opportunity, and I thank the people over at DMGS for that. That's really exciting. Mm-hmm. I'm excited to see how it all pans out. Well, we'll have you up to Washington, Paige. Oh, fantastic. Oh, yeah, sure. that'd be you, great. You all come up, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, that'd be great. So if you had one piece of advice to give our audience, what would it be? Well, look, I think, you know, we're all individuals. We all have our unique qualities and capabilities and and internal value system. So it's not a case of, you know, one size fits all, not at all. Right. But in my case, and I think in the case of in the case of many, many people, the advice I would give is this. And I'm sure you've heard this before. Do what you really believe in. Do something for which you have a passion. Commit to it. Be tenacious. Never give up. Never compromise. Never compromise your integrity on what it is you believe in. And that's not easy. No. Okay? You have to sacrifice. You have to recognize you may not receive the offers that you think you ought to receive. But you have to go ahead with what you believe in. And if you do that, hopefully, hopefully, things will come true. And you will do what you really want to do in the manner that you want to do it. And it, even if it doesn't come true, you, you learn from that. Yes, you learn from that. And you're better for it. And you recognize you know, that if you maintain your integrity and you commit to something that you think will not only benefit you and your family, but will benefit a community or groups or others in your particular universe, then you've achieved something and you've made a difference, you know? And the value is is uh, not always about money. I concur. You know? Mm-hmm. And you concur, so you, you understand. If, if what you're doing is only for the money, then... It's a very shallow type of existence that you have, okay? Because there's more to the experience of life yeah. than that. That's an important part. We all want to make money. We all want to be comfortable. We all want to take care of our friends and family for sure. But that is not the North Star by which to guide you, I believe. And that's my advice. Find the thing that pleases you the most, for which you have a passion for, wherein you can make a career from it, keep to it, never give up, never compromise, and associate with people of like mind. And lo and behold, yes, you can emerge victorious. 
Fantastic. That's great advice. That's great advice. What book influenced you the most? Oh, what a question. Oh, not Paige. your own book. Paige. <laughs> My own book, Banned in the USA. <laughs> <laughs> actually, actually, it's an obscure, very obscure book philosophy, which I studied at McGill University when I was doing my master's studies. And it's a book on phenomenology by Brecht. And really what this was, and again, I was going against it. I am the most unconventional person you'll ever meet, okay? Which is why I got into the unconventionals in the first place, right? Very setting, right? <laughs> Isn't it? Yeah. So I was studying political science at a time when the discipline was totally committed to Empirical methodologies, right? Scientific approaches to the study of political science. And that really didn't do anything for me. So I started researching, and this philosophy called phenomenology appeared before me, you know, European approach. But what was important is that it dealt with subjectivity, consciousness, and intuition. And I love that because I'm a big believer in intuitive intelligence. Emotional, almost emotional intelligence. And emotional, you know, no, no, you're right. Emotional and intuitive intelligence. We're trained, we're almost programmed, educated, trained, programmed, almost from birth, to have a rational view of the world and mm -hmm. think intellectually in a certain way. And that's fine, but there are other ways as well uh, where you can expand your capability to think and analyze and seek inspiration. Yeah. And inspiration is an interesting word, because what does it mean? It means in the spirit. And that's what intuition really is, you know. And, and it's attributed mostly to women, but also it should be something that men can also take advantage of. It's a very powerful tool, emotional and intellectual and, and so forth. And it's based also on experience. You have to have experience to make this thing really work. And men are different than women, I think, in, in that way. Men are, you know, sometimes hard-headed. Well, I'm going to let you say it. Yeah, I'll say it. I'll <laughs> say it. Yeah, we, we are not politically correct on this show, I think. <laughs> so, yeah, so men have to have experience sometimes to learn the real lessons of life. And I think that's important, having that sort of, in my case, every opportunity I, I had to experience something different, unique, even if it carried risk. And the more risk, the more reward, as they say, you know? Yeah. And I, I enjoy that very much. And, and, and that allowed me to develop what, through the study of consciousness and then group consciousness and the politics that we see now emerging because of the internet, social media, all of that is technology catching up with the study of phenomenology, you know, back in the day. I just like that word. Isn't it great? Yeah. Phenomenon. You're a phenomenologist. So. Oh, that's just. <laughs> so now we have group consciousness through the internet, social media. Yeah. People from all, like this podcast, you're reaching literally hundreds of thousands of people from across the world. And they have a sort of a, a common denominator, a mindset that attunes them to your podcast and to the issues that you are addressing. That's group consciousness. And that can have huge impact in the business community, in politics, in the social understanding of the power of hydrocarbons to do good in the world through companies committing to various projects and, and social causes or 
I almost think career development. Career development. Yeah, you name it. So what you're doing here is phenomenology based on new technologies. Yes. And getting the message out and having this group awareness, whatever term you want to use. Right. Okay. That's not only influence, but that's power if it's crafted in a responsible way, which is what you are doing, which is why I think you all are so successful in a very short period of time. So for me, that book was very influential, and I, I developed my intuitive capabilities the best I could, and I used that professionally. And how do we use it professionally in my case? And we're going to utilize this in the Institute, okay, which is to provide research based on foreknowledge, forecasting, probability scenarios, looking at the options that might be available to governments and corporations and individuals as to how this wonderful uh, industry of hydrocarbons and other resources can change the face of the world because it can change economies. It can allow people opportunities to emerge out of poverty and that sort of thing. So it's a fascinating world, and we're just at the beginning of it. Mm-hmm. Well, I must say that's quite a phenomenal answer. Phenomenal. <laughs> phenomenon. 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 <laughs> <laughs> oh, I couldn't help that pun. What would you say is your most used business tool? For me, the most important tool is an intellectual one. And it's the ability to do creative research. I like that. Yeah. And creative research is based on some of points we just addressed. Your ability to find that nugget that provides the answer to perplexing questions that are posed by investors or by government or by the military. And how do you do that? You know, you do it through research of a certain type. Right. Where you understand the agenda and the orientation and the bias of a particular document or a particular book or publication. And you are able to extract that bias or that agenda out of the raw material that you are researching. And you find that nugget of gold, if you will, through that mass of verbiage and 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 plethora of ideas and concepts that really have no meaning. They're just fillers. But down there somewhere is that nugget that really means a lot. And if you can put, like a puzzle, if you can find enough of those nuggets and put them together, you have a pot of gold. And that's what creative research is all about. That's what I do. And I love doing it. It's uh, time-consuming for sure. But, you know, that's what work is about. You put in a lot of work and a lot of time to find the things that your client or your customer wants, and you want to please your customer. My dad had a Dairy Queen. Awesome. Right? <laughs> That's cool. A Dairy Queen. And he taught me, you know, even if it's a cone or you're making a strawberry shortcake, you please the customer. And that's what you do with creative research. You go the extra mile. You find the thing that no one else has found in order to give your client something unique, something valuable that they can use in their work. Interesting. I always ask this question, and I, I don't know if it's applicable, but I, I bet you would be able to find someone that's, in a sense, a competitor. But who would you say is your most respected competitor? Oh, goodness gracious. That's a difficult question. But let me say this in, in general. 
the very best, the most capable centers on the geopolitics of energy, and there, there were not many, are to be found in Russia. Hmm. Yep. The Russians have understood the power, the geopolitical value of oil and gas since before the First World War. Yeah. The oil discoveries around the Caspian Basin. Mm-hmm. And they have a very sophisticated, very nuanced approach as to how to utilize all these elements of energy, geopolitics, and power to their advantage. And we see it with the pipeline strategies going into Europe. We see it in their export strategies to China and Japan and their ability to utilize that to advance the uh, goals and objectives of the state. You know, so they're very, very capable, and we have a lot to learn from them. And I respect those entities that operate at university level and so forth. So I want our institute to match and even surpass these uh, wonderful institutes, very capable institutes in Russia. All right. What's your most important lesson learned? Well, the most important lesson is, you know, to have a belief in yourself, to love yourself for who you are to understand your limitations and to work within those limitations and to exploit the advantages that you know God has given you as an individual. And every individual is different. Every individual has different capabilities. And sometimes it's very hard to look into yourself, warts and all, and understand, you know, you're just a human being. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to fail. And it's a good thing to fail. It's a good thing to make mistakes if you recognize them, if you're honest with that, because you learn from it. Well, most of us. Yeah, hopefully. We all learn, you know, from our mistakes and our failures. But that's life, you know? Yeah. And you recognize there are challenges that are placed in front of you. And it's like a test, you know? Trials and tribulations. Yes. So I'm a big believer in loyalty. I'm a big believer in teamwork. I'm a big believer in listening to other people, taking their advice. Listening to constructive criticism. Absolutely, absolutely. And it's fun. I, that's, I, I don't, you know, I regard it as really enjoyable because you're part of a, a group experience, right? Yeah. It's a family in a way. Yes, exactly. Right? Exactly. And it's something that uh, I hope we can replicate with the Institute, and I think we're going to do it. Yeah. Well, good luck with that. Well, thank you, ma'am. What's your favorite podcast? Well, look, I actually listen to an array. I don't think I have a favorite, but I listen to an array of podcasts and Twitter feeds when dealing with domestic politics of one type or another. And again, I, I'm very unconventional in my approach because I'm looking for nuggets. And you're not going to find nuggets in the mainstream. Right. Okay. So podcasts and Twitter feeds that are sort of on a margin, I like going to these places. Now, I know a lot of it is just sort of filler. I understand that. But I also know there's nuggets to be found, but you got to piece them together when you find one. You right. Find another, it's a big another. puzzle. It's a, yeah, and I love that. You know? Me too. Do you? Yes. Okay, good for you. So that's my orientation, okay? I, I can't say I have a particular faith because I... All over the place, all, just trying yeah, to... All over the place, I, you know. Just trying to absorb it all to get yep. to the nugget. Get the nugget, Yeah. But I think podcasts are very influential, and a podcast is a broadcast, in effect. And I can see, and we can see it now, that this aspect of social media, this aspect of communication, information uh, technology, 
is uh, surpassing mainstream media in every possible way. Mainstream media belongs to a different generation. And this podcast and others like it challenge establishment thinking. I mean, that's the value of these things in many ways. Okay, so when, when we're talking about hydrocarbons right. and the diversity of hydrocarbons and the exciting prospect of the petroleum industry, the new technologies, the job creation, artificial intelligence, sensors and drilling bits and so forth. I mean, this is, this is fascinating. This is exciting. This is groundbreaking, literally, right? Right. You know? <laughs> but, um, um, we, yeah, we should. So it's a mixture of geology and technology and economics and politics. I mean, what more could you want? You know, so it's it's a fascinating world. It's exciting. It has huge opportunities and in any number of ways for people to participate in. And you don't have to be a Ph.D. No, you know, you don't. It used to be that, hey, if you're going to get involved in the industry, you have to have a Ph.D. in geology or you have to have an MBA. That's not the case Mm -mm. anymore. You know. Sometimes experience trumps that. Exactly. Sure. Yeah. Thank you again for joining me, Professor. If people want to reach out to you or get to know more about your affiliations, how could they go about doing that? Oh, sure. Look, they can contact me at the Daniel Morgan Graduate School in Washington, D.C. I'll give you my email address. Of and I'll put that in the show notes for everyone. Yeah, and you can have the phone number on the show notes as well. They can reach me there. and I'm more than happy to respond to folks and discuss with them whatever is maybe of interest for them. Because that's, that's also my job too, right? Right. Is to reach out. And let me just say this before we wrap up. Oh, yeah. Part of our philosophy with the new institute is not to be ensconced, anchored in Washington, D.C. We want to reach out to... Grow. To America, right? Come down to the Gulf Coast. Come down to Texas. Go to Utah. Go to West Virginia and these places. And speak to people there and bring the message that, the message that we're sharing today in the podcast to folks who are working hard every day and may not necessarily see the tremendous value that they're bringing to peace and prosperity here in in the U.S. And that's part of the message that we want to give across. Hey, you all are working hard. You're working tough jobs, you know, and, 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 and sometimes you have anxiety and there's stress involved and, and everything. But you're doing something for God and country that we want to share with you and let you know that it's appreciated and we encourage you and we support you and we're going to get Washington to back you up and everything you all need. That's awesome. That's mm-hmm. so awesome. All right. So that concludes this episode. Just remember, it's up to you to open the next door. Tune in next week for another intriguing episode of Bulwark's Oil and Gas Industry Leaders podcast, a production of the Oil and Gas Global Network. Learn more at oilandgasindustryleaders.com. Yeah.